Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. As an artist, Sonia Henriksen examines urban and natural environments through exploration and research. Her work manifests in immersive video installations and what she calls interventions in nature. She has been invited to group and solo exhibitions internationally, including shows at the DePaul Museum in Chicago and the Organ Haas Art Space in China. Sonia has completed a number of artist residencies, including stays at the Santa Fe Art Institute and the Taipei Artist Village in Taiwan. Her continuing large participatory project, Snow Drawings, engages communities worldwide and has received significant critical attention. These pieces clearly resonate with a lot of people and have been featured on a number of art, design, culture, and environmental media outlets, including the Huffington Post, Wired, Spiegel Online in Germany, NPR, the Discovery Channel, and many, many more. Sonia, I'm really excited to speak with you. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about all of this. Well, I'm really interested in your work as well, and there's so much to talk about. There's a lot of depth in your work and things that we can discuss. But in our correspondences prior to the show, you had mentioned that you had actually gone back and listened to some of my previous shows, and you noted how many of the artists kind of talk about their background and their journey. And yours is uh, a very interesting story as well. So I want to take a little time here at the beginning on, on this topic so please feel free to take us back however far you'd like and tell us a little bit about your path as an artist. And I'm particularly interested to know the moment when you knew you wanted to be an artist. And I, I tend to ask that of a lot of our guests. So, But feel free to take us back wherever you'd like. Yeah, so first of all, maybe about my, you know, educational background, my academic background. I went to art school in Germany. Um, uh, and at first I was an art education program, meaning, you know, I would have become a public arts, a public school teacher, high school teacher for art. And I realized at some point that, um, that wasn't really what I was, what I wanted to do, but that I wanted to be an artist. So after finishing up there, I moved on to San Francisco and uh, got an MFA at the San Francisco Art Institute. And that was, I finished my MFA in 2001. Um, the teaching idea came back somewhat after grad school. Uh, but this time, you know, it would have been teaching on, co on college level. Uh, however, the circumstances have so far not led to that. Um, this also has to do with, you know, I'm an immigrant and there are certain, certain things that are different. Um, like, you know, taking an adjunct position after grad school, that was not available to me as a non-U.S. resident. I basically was a student in the U.S. and when I, when I left, I had, you know, when, when, when my uh, degree was finished, I had to leave because that's, you know, my student visa ran out. And um, I finally got a green card in 2008, um, and that's right when the financial crisis hit and, you know, um, positions that became vacant were not filled and professors were laid off altogether due to budget cuts. 
And, uh, you know, at this point, um, right now, adjunct teaching in the Bay Area is sort of impossible uh, due to extremely high concentrations of artists around here. Um, so I would have to have the right kind of connections. Um, but my connections are really more artists like myself, not so much people who teach. Um, <clears throat> also, a lot of times, actually, people who teach adjunct, they say, um, at least here around here, it's really not worth it because the pay is so little. Um, so, you know, um, all those years, um, you know, between like I had, yeah, uh, I had that time that I, I call it my limbo years or limbo time, uh, when I was basically living between countries, um, or even continents after graduate school. Um, and that time actually I used to build up my career as an artist, uh, funny enough, um, I initially moved back to Europe after grad school and, you know, wanted, had intended to stay there, but I discovered pretty quickly that I wanted to be back in the U.S. Um, this had many reasons. Uh, one of it was really my work, which had become increasingly informed by U.S. topics, especially the lands of the Western United States. And also I had adapted to a California lifestyle and Germany, with all its bureaucracy and rigidness and also its climate, just didn't work for me any longer. Yeah. Now, um, I, I have a question here. What What do you mean mm -hmm. by the uh, by the California lifestyle? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just a much more laid back lifestyle, you know, and um, it's just very, very different from Germany, which is people are different, people are more relaxed, really is that way. And, you know, and the climate is, I, I always feel like climate and um, surroundings, environments really form people. And um, Germany is just, uh, gosh, there, you know, there were so many incidences that I had when I went back, you know, not being able to do things for certain reasons because of whatever, you know, and it's, mm. it's, it's, um, it's, it just didn't fit me anymore. And I also feel like a California lifestyle is also much different from, let's say, a New York lifestyle. It's much slower here. Um, uh, when I'm in New York, in New York or the East Coast, um, I always feel a little like I'm back in Europe or I'm back in Germany. Not quite as bad as, as, as there, but, you know, people are much more stressed out and rushed and um, California is, is, it's more, it's more me. It just is more me. And I also love the lands here and I, I, I just love California. That's it. <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. Well, it's for whatever drawbacks or advantages it may have for artists. One of the things that you mentioned is that the environment and how that shapes a person as an academic myself, you know, I'm tied to this location. I, I, you know, it's very difficult. The job that I do, there are so few and far between. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sort of in that academic world. And so I don't get to choose where I live. And, and that maybe is for whatever drawbacks it might have, you know, um, being an artist and not being an ac academic, you get to choose where you live, which is a huge, huge thing for your work, for making work and for being inspired. Yeah, it is. And it's also sort of a dilemma in a way, because I definitely, you know, there was a time for me when I, <clears throat> when I considered um, uh, going elsewhere, because California, 
and especially the San Francisco Bay Area is not really that supportive to the arts. <clears throat> and I was going to talk about that later, but we can talk about it now too. It's um, <clears throat> it's um, it's it's pretty difficult to live here because rents are just astronomous. Yeah. Um, and there was a time when I thought about, you know, I always heard about, you know, like whatever, um, uh, Minneapolis or yeah. uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania being really supportive, uh, having all these uh, subsidized art, live arts spaces, live workspaces. And, uh, um, but then, you know, I just know that I would not be happy there. I would just not, I would hate that climate there for, in the first place. I mean, that would be almost worse than living back in Germany, at least climate wise, you know? So um, there was a time also when I, thought I just really wanted to teach and I do want, I still want to teach. Um, but, um, I just felt like, uh, you know, like teaching positions here is probably not going to happen. So I thought, well, why don't I just go wherever I find a job for, to teach? But I've changed my mind on that a little bit, uh, especially since I've really moved back to Oakland uh, or, or moved back to the Bay Area. Like there was a, a long time when I when I was here part of the time and not part of the time. But in 2013, I moved to Oakland and I really, really love it here. And I just don't know uh, if if I want to just follow a job and go where that takes me. I mean, yeah. I came to the United States, to California because of this because of the Bay Area and California, you know, in part and to a major part. That's why I immigrated here. So it would be actually sort of counteractive to now just uh, just uh, leave for an opportunity that shows up somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, and, and there are there might be places that I could probably uh, think of. Uh, there was a time when I thought maybe I should move to Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. But I would say anything east of Colorado, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> and that's unfortunately where most of the jobs are in yeah, teaching. Yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, was fortunate to spend uh, one year teaching in Laramie, Wyoming. I taught there for a year as a sabbatical replacement. And absolutely, I mean, I, I had been to Colorado as a kid on vacations because I grew up here in Texas. And, um, you know, I knew the Mountain West and the Rocky Mountains, but... Uh, never had the opportunity to live there. And so I lived in Laramie for a year and I just absolutely fell in love with, um, you know, the wide open spaces and the mountains and the climate and everything about it, you know? And, uh, so I often think that, yeah, I would like to at some point find myself West, <laughs> you know, in those Western States. And I, you know, I spent a lot of time in New Mexico too, is a beautiful, beautiful state. If you've, yes, if you've ever been there. Yes. Um, I spent a lot of time there, mm -hmm, uh, during, <laughs> during my, during my doctorate doing research and going to all the Pueblos and listening to Native American music. And so there's a whole other sort of energy that's happening there in New Mexico, but that's a beautiful, uh, landscape as well. So I'm right with you in the American West. I, I think that's where it's at in this, uh, you know, in this country, that's the place to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's go back to, um, let's kind of pick up your story here. You were talking about, uh, the California lifestyle and not wanting to live in Germany. So maybe we can pick up, uh, pick up around there. Yeah. So, um, there was a time when, you know, after I had decided I wanted to, uh, 
come back to the U.S. I had to find a legal way to do that and to immigrate. And there were some years where I went back and forth between the U.S. and Europe all the time. I lived in Holland for a few months. Then I had a long artist residency in Slovakia. At that time, I had no permanent residence anymore. Uh, So really no home. (laughs) Um, And then in 2005, I came back to the U.S., Um, still didn't have a work permit at that time. And I still kept going from residency to residency. And sometimes in between, I was in the Bay Area uh, for, you know, like a, a few weeks, a couple months and always, you know, had sublets. It was a crazy time, <laughs> but uh, it gave me time to make my art and to explore the intre- what interests me uh, as an artist. Um, uh, of course, all- that always is in a constant flow, too. Yeah, and then maybe to go all the way back, other than academic training, um, I was always working in- on some kinds of uh, arts and crafts projects when I was a child. I always loved creative work. And my dad taught me darkroom photography when I was about five or six. Um, he was an amateur photographer. Um, and I think he took up photography mainly just to document family family life and his children growing up. And I have to say my childhood was extremely well documented for a child growing up in the early 70s. Uh, you know, at that time, most people hired professional photographers to have family photos taken. Or maybe if they had a camera, they would um, have a few shots that they took uh, printed by a photographer. For me, I, there is tons of photos. <laughs> uh, Um, Otherwise, uh, my parents are not artistic and unfortunately also have very little understanding for the arts. Um, My dad was an electronic engineer and had a a hobbyist workshop in the basement. So he always built things, customized things. I remember him building these uh, LED clocks before anyone else had LED clocks. Um, But for him, it always needed you know, to fulfill an applicable purpose, like yeah. a clock, a radio, a kitchen machine, something like that. Uh, otherwise, it made no sense. So art doesn't make sense to my parents. <laughs> <laughs> still, and still, uh, still, still doesn't. Still no, doesn't. no, it does not. <laughs> and then in high school, uh, first of all, we had art all the time from, you know, from grade one through 13. At that time, there were thir- 13 years of public school in Germany. Uh, I think now they only have 12. But um, whenever there was, so I had that. uh, And then whenever there was an after-school program, uh, I would be in there, like whatever it was, ceramics, theater. And I have to say that my high school art teacher was also very supportive. And then, you know, once I went, went on to art school in Germany, art school in Germany, it's competitive. It's uh, a competitive admission process uh, where you send in a portfolio, and if you get through that, that's the first round. Uh, you are, uh, you know, you are invited for a two-day practical and oral exam, and uh, then you know they take a small percentage of those students that you know get through that. That's the second round, you know, of selection. 
and once in though, it's a lot more self-directed than in the United States. Um, students are basically expected to know what they want to do and to develop their own projects from day one. Of course, they can discuss that with their professors, but you know they are pretty much um, expected to work independently. The setup is a little different from U.S. art schools. Students are in in classes and have one main professor. So it's not like they have a class with that professor and with another professor. And, you know, so they, they have one main professor who works with them for the first year and then they choose another professor and they stay in that class, basically. Uh, but, you know, of course, you know, the media uh, can change from, you know, whatever. They, they might be in a painting class in the beginning and they might switch. It's, it's always possible to switch. And for me, my focus on media changed a lot. There have always been surprises. I started out in sculpture, but moved into spatial work pretty early on. Like I created these um, installations. At first it was uh, drawing installations where I made these spaces that consisted entirely of drawings and then also uh, installations with projections. First it was projections with slides multiple slide projectors that sometimes I synced. Um, and then I went into video installations. And um, the way I came to video was also quite unexpectedly. It was a media that initially didn't interest me at all because I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't figure out, or it just didn't make sense to me, why images would have to go on magnetic tape. You know, you can't see them. I mean, if, if I have film, you know, I can see the images on there. And also having to edit on these weird editing machines made no sense. Mm. So um, I got into it because of a visiting artist who gave a workshop on using the new SVHS camera that the school had acquired. It was this monster, but actually very good. You could, you know, make all manual adjustments and actually, you know, technically probably better than a lot of cameras today. And no one came to the to this workshop except me. So I got a one in one on one intro to video. Then it started making more sense because the camera itself uh, made sense to me because I knew photography. And of course, with this, there you know the time aspect was added. But this was exciting to me. And so, so I, I'm sorry to yeah. interrupt. Uh, what year are we talking about here? What went went? Oh gosh, this must have been. You know, like um, early to mid, uh, probably really the mid nineties. The mid nineties. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at first, I just played around with that camera. I uh, <laughs> I did all these performances by myself. Uh, you know that I filmed uh, was things like covering my entire body in paint and stuff like that. And then I learned how to edit the video on the computer that we had at art school, which had virtually no memory, but it had this interface that ran tape decks that were connected to it via LAN cable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so you could cut from between two tapes, uh, you could cut hard cuts and simple dissolves. And this, as, as I said, this was about 95, 96. Um, so in technology, this school was pretty backward actually yeah but um, from then on my work became increasingly immaterial um, and I that's something I appreciate ab about my work because I feel like our world is oversaturated with human products um, and I don't feel that as an artist I need to add on more stuff to this planet 
uh, with video installations, uh, you know, they unfold into huge experiences. They're usually multi-channel projections and visitors can sort of get drawn in. They can immerse themselves into it. And in the end, it breaks down into a small stack of DVDs or lately even just a few computer files. And, um, you know, as the work developed, it became more investigative, um, became like what I call mapping projects where I explored places that were, you know, art like research aspects, so they were kind of like art research projects that intertwined my experience and perceptions of places with facts uh, about these places, like the history of these places. Uh, and with places, could be anything, could be towns, cities, landscapes. Um, um, uh, Sonia, yeah. I'd like to add, I'd like to follow up on a couple of things here that uh, that you've said here that uh, kind of interests me, and I want to get a little deeper into, if that's okay with you. Yeah, sure. One of the things that you said uh, just just now is that your your work became increasingly immaterial. Uh, that you you said that our world is oversaturated with stuff, and you don't want to contrib- contribute and add more stuff. That's really interesting to the concept because you know that means that your work is is sort of ephemeral. And as a musician, yeah. that's I work in that world. You know, I work in mm-hmm. the ephemeral world. Uh, music, it it is. Uh, there in the air and then it is gone and even notation uh you know notated music it's really impossible to get all of the nuances on the page no matter how many instructions you put in and how many you know dynamic marks and all of the articulations and all of that stuff it really still doesn't get the nuance of a musical performance then of course you know you have recordings but that's also somewhat inadequate when it comes to the drama of a live performance and experiencing live music and the sound in the hall or in the room, you know, is you just can't, you just can't capture that. So I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the ephemeral nature of your work and how, if it's possible to capture or document these pieces that you do. Yeah, I mean, the documentation aspect is really important of it. You know, it's uh, it, it, I, I need to make sure I get good photographs or good video or whatever it is. And um, I will come back to that also with my snow drawings a little bit. Yeah. Where the mm-hmm. performative action is actually the most important. But then still, you know, I want to get those photos. Um, that is super important. But... Um, I love this ephemerality. I just love that. I, I'm just not a material person. I just don't feel like I need to, you know, have actual objects of that I create, you know, like some, and I'm asked that by artists, by visual artists all the time, you know, don't you want to create something that lasts, you know, don't you mind that your work just goes away that like with the snow drawings, for instance, the snow just smelts, melts away. So, um, you know, people always ask me that. I'm like, no, actually, I'm very happy about that. I just really, really like that. I don't need to create something that that stays. It's not it's not important to me, really. So. But yeah. you do document these pieces, so there is uh, a record yes. of, of the yes. events. Yes, as I said, yeah. it's super important to yeah. document them well. Yes, yes, yes. Because that's how they live on. That's how they travel into the world. That's how other people uh, can see them, you know? Yeah. So that is super important. Mm-hmm. 
and I didn't mean to interrupt your story too much, but then you, you were also just saying about uh, you, you sort of, your work became investigative and mapping projects and exploring places. And something you said in your a statement on your website was that you are interested in that sort of intersection between place and human perception. And you also said that you're sort of drawn to inhospitable environments. So I'd be interested to know how you began to make those connections and then how you felt like that sort of manifests in your work as well. And you might get to that within your story here, but I wanted to bring it up. Yeah, I will get get into it. But yes, it's, uh, I, I think I just got, I, I, I'm just really intrigued by the American West and the lands, the landscapes and uh, the history of them, which is, you know, compared to Europe, a very short history in terms of uh, the history that uh, they are what they are now. Before that, they were something else and they were inhabited by different kinds of people and um, who lived different kinds of lifestyles. And, you know, I got uh, very, very interested in that along the way too. And, you know, have done a lot of research on Native American life philosophies and lifestyles and their stories, which often give a little bit of an insight into the way they lived in these lands. And yeah, so, and then of course the history of how did it happen that they became what they are now, you know, things like the Westward Movement, um, settlers uh, coming in, um, you know, things like the New Deal era. And um, that's... um, that was very, very, was as an immigrant, is kind of new to me, of course, but um, also was super interesting. So I'm really interested in how people have uh, responded to lands um, and places over time throughout history. Uh, you know, different people have seen it in different ways, while Native Americans have were able to live in parts of the great American deserts. Um, the uh, U.S. American government decided that these were wastelands and that they are useless and that they can be used for uh, depositing toxic uh, wastes, you know, or for military test grounds or for testing atomic bombs like the Nellis test ground in Nevada, you know, things like that. Yeah. To me, that's very interesting how this shifts and how how the perception of it uh, has shifted. So, you know, and then, of course, I have my own perception. Yeah, yeah. There's a beautiful place in New Mexico. I don't know if you ever visited there. Uh, It's kind of off the beaten trail, but it's called Three Rivers, New Mexico. And it's a little, you know, you're driving. uh, It's just north of Alamogordo. And Mm -hmm. uh, when you drive and you look off to the right on the, I can't remember the highway there, but you're driving off to the right, there's this sort of outcropping of rocks. And it's very out of the way. You would never really even know it's there. There's a little sign that says Three Rivers. But you drive up there, and it's um, there's a little trail that goes up. It's maybe half a mile or a mile little loop that goes up in this rock outcropping. And there are literally thousands and thousands of petroglyphs pecked into the patina um, of the rock and they've weathered in such a way that they're, you know, they're sort of reliefs or, or, but they're actually pecked into the rocks and they're totally mysterious. Uh, you know, there've been speculations as to what they were intended for. Some people think they were sort of traveling clans that were moving through the area, sort of marking their family sign into these rocks. But there are literally thousands of such markings on all of these rocks 
that to me is uh, sort of indicative of that American West too, that, that there are all these things that have been sort of lost or forgotten along the way that the landscape, uh, Peter Garland, a composer, uh, that I, that I've corresponded with and worked with a lot, good friend of mine, he said once that, uh, he felt like the American West was a landscape that burned with meaning that had been largely forgotten. And, Mm. uh, I think that's, I don't know that that's necessarily true because many of the the cultures uh, still exist in that area and they do thrive in in their own way. Um, They have problems, of course, but much of that culture is intact, but a lot of it isn't. And um, anyway, I just think that's a really interesting sort of idea that kind of goes along with what you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, New Mexico in itself is not just interesting, it's almost absurd. If you just think, you were just saying Alamogordo, that is very close where uh, Trinity site is, yes, where uh, yes. the first uh, the first atomic bomb was tested right. in uh, 1945. And, you know, New Mexico, I've done a lot of research about that actually and about New Mexico. And, you know, there was this, there was this side by side of this this uh, this uh, super secret uh, project called the Manhattan Project, and uh, you know this this development of the atomic bombs and all these these uh, uh, super brainy scientists, uh, Oppenheimer, Lawrence, uh, uh, Fermi, all of those were up there on that hill in uh, Los Alamos, while at the same time down Valley or just actually you know a few miles away, uh, there there was this very, very, at this time, still intact um, uh, tribal community, these tribal communities like San Ildefonso, all these uh, Pueblos that are, uh, that are kind of uh, grouped there. Uh, it's like, it's totally nuts. It's like <laughs> there were these two worlds clashing in this super, super absurd way. And I mean, it's still a little like that in New Mexico. But at that time, I mean, it must have been it must have been just crazy, yeah. you know. Um, New Mexico is—it's fascinating. It's like one of the most uh, fascinating places in the United States. At least that's how I feel about it. I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, my wife is from Albuquerque, and she would also agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah. Uh, so uh, let's get back into um, you were you were talking about uh, getting interested in exploring places and that you were investigating with your work. Maybe you can pick up there and continue on with your story. Yeah. So um, I became increasingly interested in addressing an environmental agendas and started doing very simple performances or what I sort of what I call interventions in the environment. And I think, um, you know, most of them were inspired by the West and amazing environments of the American West um, that I spent time at during all of those artist residencies that I did in those what I call the limbo years. And they are ephemeral, non-permanent pieces that disappear after a short time that nature takes back. Yeah, and I, 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 I was talking about that ephemerality earlier, but... Um, one thing I, w- I wanted to add to that is that I feel like landscapes are so scarred and dug up and damaged by human hand. And again, I don't want to add on to that. I don't want to contribute to that as an artist. It's not necessary. I I much rather do pieces that, you know, are very subtle and that are there for a short time and then nature just takes them back. 
Yeah, and in terms of, you know, all these turns and my art changing and being open to new things, um, a couple of years ago, I started learning ceramics uh, and actually functional ceramics. And this came out of a project that's called Living Off the Land. And Living Off the Land has to do with using wild growing edible plants for food meaning collecting, foraging them, and then making foods out of them. And I've done that in different places in the, in, in the U.S. and also abroad. But uh, with this project, which, you know, I, I, I prepare foods and then I, I have some sort of events around them, which could be a food tasting event or like a, a, a kind of almost ceremonial dinner event, something like that. But I realized, you know, while I was preparing them and then serving them that um, I needed to be able to make customized eating and cooking ware for that. It needed to match those pieces. It, you know, because the, the, the vessels that I use for serving these foods or for, for preparing them because the preparation, I, you know, I, I videotape all of that, that becomes a uh, part of the work, the video pieces, you know, so they make a statement, whatever I use, and I use store-bought vessels to, to, to do that and, you know, try to get something that's very simple, just wide and, you know, plain. But um, I decided I had to make my own. I had to find out, figure out how to make my own. So I started ceramics classes. Um, and um, while my main focus is still the Living Off the Lands project, um, and I have done a few ceramics uh you know, projects in con connection to some living off the land pieces. But uh, also, while the main focus is still that, I have also ventured off a little bit of that, um, mainly because I felt like I really need to learn the technique. With ceramics, there is a ton of technique to learn, and it's, it's not easy to show on the wheel. And um, I, I love it. I just totally love it. And uh, it's probably partly because it is a sort of counterbalance to my other work, you know, the tactile versus the material. So I have come back to a material, but, you know, interestingly enough, it's earth that I'm working with. It's soil, it's clay. It's a super grounding meditative um, thing to do. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm not really sure where this clay thing is leading me to, but I feel like I need to let it happen because a lot of my projects have, you know, happened uh, like out of out of something like like I described with the video and also my snow drawings were that way. It was something that I didn't take seriously as art in the beginning. Was just playing around, and a lot of major major projects uh, developed out of those incidences. Um, so I decided I have to follow this urge to learn ceramics, even if at the moment this consumes a huge amount of my time. It's sort of ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, so it seems like in my career, there have always been these, um, these, uh, these uh, turns that are uh, unexpected and come as a complete surprise. So, um, yeah, and I also started drawing again. Uh, I used to draw a lot during undergrad. Um, as I was uh, mentioning before, I made like whole in, uh, installations with drawings. But then once I moved to the U.S. and went to graduate school, I actually did not draw for many years. And uh, I started drawing few years ago at an artist residency. Uh, um, you know, artist residencies a lot of time kind of 
give you the time and space to just uh, to just uh, experiment yeah. and do something you might not not usually do. And uh, you know, like smaller drawings evolved into really big drawings and um, mural sized drawings now. So that's also something I that came back. Yeah. So yeah. there are always these unexpected paths for me. Yeah. Well, let's um, let's go back a little bit to this idea of the um, interventions in in nature. Uh, you mentioned before that um, the, these sort of ephemeral, non-permanent pieces that disappear, and uh, you have this term interventions. I'd like to I'd like to kind of get into that, and also kind of I mentioned it earlier, but maybe we can get more into how you've been drawn to sort of in his inhospitable environments. And like how those two concepts sort of manifest in your work and anything you'd like to say about that? Yeah, I have always been a person who is drawn to nature, to the outdoors. For me, my physical surroundings and my connections to the environment I live in are more important than the connections to people. So in other words, I choose my locations by how the place intrigues me and fascinates me. Then I find the people that I connect to. at that place. Um, as I was mentioning before, this is how I ended up moving here um, to California because of the place. Yeah. And um, I think my fascination for the American landscape actually dates back to a cross-country trip that I did with my ex-boyfriend right after high school. Um, and that was my first visit to the U.S. Um, and we traveled across from east to west and back on a southern route and then back on a northern route. Uh, This was for several weeks. We traveled on Greyhound buses, actually mostly Trailways buses, which at that time was a separate company. And this was, I think it was in summer 1986. And at that time, you could still get pretty much anywhere on those buses. You know, they they were going much, many more places than they do now. And I remember going through the American West for days on end and not passing a town or settlement for hours and hours and hours. Only desert with endless, um, you know, amounts of cacti and Joshua trees and then only mountains, mountains, mountains. And then, you know, in the Midwest, um, grasslands like going whatever through Kansas or Nebraska or something. Yeah. You know, I grew up in Europe and Europe is much more densely populated and I had never seen such vast landscapes before, nor had I seen such variety. You know, I had never been in a desert before. Um, so I was in total awe. And I think that that trip was what laid the foundation for my enthusiasm about American lands and, you know, in later years then inspired my artwork. Mm. You know, at the time I took that trip, I had no idea I'd become an artist. And I certainly didn't even think I would ever move to the U.S., not even in my wildest dreams. I had no idea about all of that. But the fascination stayed with me of all those years. And once back in the U.S. Um, and participating in those artist residency programs that often took me to remote but breathtaking landscapes, I then you know, started becoming very interested in the history in context to these lands. And I think I said before, you know, I started, you know, researching uh, things like the Westward Movement, mm-hmm. um, the the role of the Transcontinental Railroad, the interaction between the settlers and Native Americans, the Indian Wars, and then 
also American life philosophies and mythologies and stories. Yeah, most of that research was site-specific, like specific to certain projects that I did at certain places. And I think the first one was right after grad school, before I even moved back to Europe. Um, this was in rural Nebraska. And I started reading journals written by early settlers, like the people who lived, you know, in dugouts in the prairie, often several day rides away from the nearest town. And to me, this was just totally fascinating. And uh, I started reading those journals and also fact-based fiction like My Antonia by Willa Cather. And then also voices spoken by Native people like uh, Black Elk Speaks uh, by John G. John G. Nyhart. And then uh, some years later, another project uh, that I did in Denver was about, you know, Denver. And what intrigued me here was especially that Denver is literally built on stolen land, uh, meaning land that had been given to the Sioux, Cheyenne, and Arapaho nations unconditionally and forever in the treaty, uh, the Laramie Treaty of 1851. Well, and then in 1858, a group of white settlers settled at the confluence of the South Platte and the Cherry Creek. And then a, a short time after that, gold was discovered in nearby Pikes Peak. And that was the beginning of Denver. And of course, you know, as it is, no one cared about that Laramie Treaty and that promise that they had made to the Cheyenne and the Arapaho and Sioux, right? Right. Um, because there was gold. <laughs> yeah, because there was gold, exactly. Yes, oh, yes. Right. Yeah, and then, you know, I did um, similar projects that also ventured into Native American research in the San Francisco Peninsula, at first at Jurassi, which is also an artist residency. And then later I did a sort of follow-up project uh, at the De Young Museum. That was, uh, it was not just about that, but um, I did a lot of research about the Ohlone, tri Ohlone tribes of the San Francisco Peninsula and that filtered into those pieces. Mm. And then also in New Mexico about the Anasazi tribes, you know, which is the Pueblo and the Hopi and the Akuma and the, and the Zuni tribes, which are substantially different from the Plains Indians. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I became, um, I, th I think I mentioned this, I became fascinated with the lands um, the U.S. government often declared as wastelands, like, yeah, you yeah. know, the Great American Desert, and horrified also about how these lands were, or still are, being abused as waste depositories and as military test grounds and stuff like that. These topics manifest most strongly in my video installations where I often use short sequences of texts um, that provide information, um, usually filtered through my personal perceptions and experiences um, uh, with these lands and being there. And I, you know, I hope to inspire people's thoughts. I don't want to overwhelm them with, you know, my opinions. Um, I want to uh, keep the information that I give um, short and, if possible, poetic. I don't really want to be didactic. It's more that I want to get people's minds going. Yeah. That's a difficult thing about issue-based art. Uh, you know, I think you and I share yeah. an interest in that. We might talk about that later, but uh, 
<clears throat> there's always a fine line that you walk there between evoking the subject and, and making some comment on it. I like the way you say um, being poetic about the subject without, you know, beating someone over the head with right. being, as you say, being didactic about it and, and sort of this is a problem and, you know, pointing it out and being too forceful. Uh, there's a, a fine line that you walk there. Yes, totally, totally. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and the snow drawings um, are also, you know, they, in my mind, they also address environmental issues in a way, but in a much more subtle way. Basically, through them, I hope that I can draw attention to the natural world and, you know, evoke appreciation and awe for it. Because um, I feel like this is super important um, for us. Uh, as we are becoming increasingly dis detached from the natural world. Yeah. Um, and I feel like we, we need to reconnect with nature if we want to sustain our race on this planet. You know, we are running out of resources. We are polluting land, air, and water, and we are changing the climate. And with that um, might come the collapse of entire ecosystems. I mean, really, we are running into a huge cul-de-sac, you know? If we are not crowning ourselves very soon and pay attention to our planet, we are doomed. I mean, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about this this concept and, and how it works in um, in your piece, the snow drawings. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, of course, let you describe these, but but essentially they're these large and beautiful designs made from... Uh, walking tracks uh, in sort of pristine snowfields. So maybe you can talk a little bit about these pieces and, and your concept of um, how we're disconnected from nature and how your work sort of addresses this idea. So, yeah, snow drawing started totally out of play during an artist residency in the Colorado Rockies. Um, it's called Anderson Ranch Art Center, and that was in 2009. Um, and I had brought snowshoes because um, I had been there before and um, I actually just brought the snowshoes so I could hike because my experience before was that, you know, up in these high mountains, the snowpack is so, so thick that you just, you can't walk with with normal boots. It's just, you, you would sink in all the way to your waist. Yeah. And um, yeah, and then, you know, there were these huge open areas um, um, which in summer is actually a golf course. They were they were completely pristine, not even tracked by animals. I guess for them the snowpack was also too deep. So to me it looked like this enormous canvas, and I just had to do something with it. I was literally, you know, drawn into this. <sighs> so I started walking patterns, and really just for fun at first, and then I photographed them, and realized that the lines change from dark to a sort of super hyper white depending on whether the camera and the light source meaning the sun are on the same side or on opposite sides hmm. um, so i made more of these drawings and little you know clusters of these drawings and um, it was literally i became a pen on a huge piece of canvas or paper and, um, yeah, so, you know, I kept pho photographing them and it became more serious, but still kind of was a play, you know. And then the following year, I went to other places in Colorado, New Mexico, and in upstate New York. I did one piece on a frozen river in the following year, meaning the following winter, actually. 
And I did one piece on the frozen river in northwestern Colorado and um, kept going back to that piece several days in a row. So I would continue it on and on. So it became bigger each day. And that was when the idea came up to develop participatory art making events around this snow drawings project and, you know, to invite community to take part in the creation of very huge pieces. And the first time that happened was again in northwestern Colorado. They call it the Western Slope near Steamboat Springs Mm -hmm. um, at a mountain pass. And um, then I had logistical support uh, of a woman from the Colorado Nature Conservancy and the Steamboat Springs Arts Council and uh, the Steamboat Springs Library. And then also a local pilot volunteered to take me up in airplanes so I could take photos. And that was still a fairly small project with maybe about, there were two, we did, we did two, two, two uh, consecutive weekends. And I think one of them was um, something like 12 people and the other one was maybe eight or something. I don't really remember, but it was not that many people, Uh, but it was in this really awesome area on that mountain pass called Rabbit Eels Pass. And then um, the next year, I came back to that area near Steamboat Springs, and uh, we created an even bigger piece, this time on a frozen lake. And in 2014, another piece on that same frozen lake, where uh, we, in an abstracted sense, uh, recreated the flow of the Yampa River Basically, the flow of that river was imprinted onto the frozen reservoir lake that now replaces this section of that same river. So, um, uh, so this piece has a more pronounced environmental agenda than the other snow drawings, uh, you know, because it talks about, in a way, about this river that's not there anymore. Right, you know. right. Uh, and that same winter, I was also invited to do a big snow drawings project in French, in France, in the Alps, in a ski area, and a project in uh, on a lake in upstate New York. And in this past winter, which means early 2015, I was in Finland and Alaska. And Finland was an artist residency, and I was there for seven weeks, yet... All projects there failed because there was not enough snow. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was the first time that my work got basically canceled out by climate change, huh. you know. So, yeah. Because, you know, everyone in Finland, I mean, they usually have snow. And, you know, everyone there said, well, you know, usually we have snow. Usually this is this is like totally unknown of that. We have no snow for seven weeks in a row. And this hmm. was in February, you know, where they wow. usually always have snow, at least part of, you know, at least at some point. Yeah. And Alaska did happen. But on a smaller scale, which has to do with the availability of open space there. This was at Denali National Park. And uh, there's just a lot of forest and there are, or, you know, bare rocks where like really high, high up. It, it's like it's not, there's just not that much, um, many places where it's, where it's possible to do that. Also, in that case, I wasn't able to take uh, aerial photos. Uh, I had been invited to do this project by the Denali National Park, but somehow the park administration somewhere in the upper ranks uh, canceled the flights that I had been promised due to austerity measures. Hmm. So this project only has ground shots, which I've been 
I've been working on, you know, but I haven't actually released them yet. They have a lot. I, sometimes when I shoot ground shots, I shoot sequences that later become stitched together so they become p p uh, panoramic images. Because, you know, from the ground, it's, it's almost impossible to see these patterns. You know, it's almost like you would be a fly sitting on a Persian carpet. You can't, carpet, you can't really see the pattern of the carpet because you are, your, your, your venture point is just too low. And it's the same if you are a person standing on a, like at the edge of a huge lake. You can't really see the pattern on that lake, you know, except uh, the areas that are right around you so at least if i can take panoramic images i get a i get a range of the patterns that are right close to me with the one that you did in uh, original side of the yampa river in colorado i noted that in the little description of that piece that you said that the the design there was supposed to mimic or play on the various aspects of water and I find that one to just be particularly stunning. In fact, if you do a Google search for snow drawings, the images from that particular project seem to be the ones that sort of come up to the top on, on a Google search. Uh, so if anyone is, is doing that right now as we're listening or later, uh, you'll notice that, that some of those are actually from that particular one. Uh, it's just sort of a as an aside, but an interesting one. Um, and, and one thing I, I hope you'll talk about here is... Um, I think on that particular one in the notes, it said uh, that there were approximately 50 volunteers that, that helped uh, do that. And so I was interested to hear you speak about your collaboration with these folks who I assume are mostly community members and sort of what the experience is like for them. Yeah. So the, the snow drawings really focuses primarily on the collaborative performative action. So uh, it's very important to me that the community participants, first of all, have fun doing this and that also they gain a deep and special nature experience. It's, it can be a form of meditation uh, if you are out there for hours walking patterns and listening to the crunch sound of your own footsteps, you, you know, your snowshoe footsteps. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's quite amazing. Um, so the participants are really important. Of course, I also hope that, you know, the images reach larger audiences and evoke awe for nature in them as well. Uh, I print these photos and show them in, uh, in, in galleries. Also, the video is shown in galleries or so sometimes mm -hmm. even film festivals. But they go out into the world primarily through the World Wide Web and through social media. Mm. And, uh, you know, people, you know, have taken pride in participating in these projects and, you know, also take on, take like partial ownership of the work. They are very proud in the end that they have done this. And then when the photos come on, they see them. Uh, sometimes people recognize the patterns that they made. And, you oh, know, yeah. it's, it's like a, it's really a community building kind of kind of thing. Um, I also want to point out here that the designs are in no way preconceived or sketched. They completely happen in the creative effort and with the inter interpretation of all these, you know, of the sum of all these uh, volunteer participants. I basically just give them a pattern system to work with, and that has often bases on spiral forms. The the We Are the Water one, where we recreated that river, is a little different. It's a little 
different from that. Yeah. But most of the other ones um, are based uh, primarily on spiral forms because um, they are inherent in nature and also in us. And also simply because they're easy to do, to walk, um, especially if they are walked from inside out, because you can always follow your own line, your own, you know, your, the round from before, and you get a pretty, even a nice um, spiral. Uh, you know, people are sometimes squeamish and they ask me, what if I mess it up? You know, what if I do something wrong and it messes up the whole piece? And like, you, really, you can't mess it up unless you you intentionally try to to destroy it. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And then also I feel like these, these spiral patterns leave a lot of experimentation and variation for each individual participant, um, which can range from, you know, different sizes or uh, making them uh, left turning and right turning or changing the density, you know, very dense tracks and very loose tracks. And then some people elaborate on, like, like go beyond that and, you know, walk smaller spirals around one big central spiral and, you know, things like that. I mean, there are there's stuff that I, you know, um, especially with one project, the 2013 project on Lake Catamount, the first one I did there, I was just stunned when I saw what had happened. And I really only saw that, you know, once I flew over, as I was saying, there is really no way to see it from the ground. So the first time I saw uh, what we had actually accomplished was when I was flown over the next day. And it was just stunning i was just so surprised it was yeah. so amazing Fascinating. so you know the outcome is always new always different and just always a big surprise and it's exciting it's super exciting that oh, yeah. way well i wonder uh i wanted to ask you something about uh, something a little bit more about these snow drawings this is uh, the snow drawings have kind of I assume been one of the most critically received pieces. Uh, I mean, I, I noted in the intro how you'd had features in all of these different media, and it seems like there's been a lot of interest in in this particular piece. And uh, I wondered if it had to do with the simplicity of the materials or the community aspect of it, or uh, it made me think of uh, uh, something in my world, which is c quite similar. It seems like uh, anytime I play a piece that uses found objects, so maybe it's uh, flower pots or tin cans, and in percussion those are pretty common things that composers will call for. And when I've played these pieces, you know, uh, people often remark that they, you know, that, that that was their favorite piece on the program, the one that used the flower pots. And I think there's something familiar about the materials there. You know, they have flower pots at their house or they have tin cans and, and maybe they've noticed the sound of that. And so there's something that resonates with people about these kinds of things. And so we've all, you know, been out in the snow and made tracks in the snow or made snow angels or something like that. And you've, you know, taken this concept and made these amazing uh, pieces. I wonder if it has, if the, the attention and the, the response that you're getting from these pieces have to do with something that, it's something that people recognize, but it goes beyond their expectations or beyond their imagination or something. I, I wonder if, if that has any resonance with you. I think it also has to do with the fact that it's sort of combines uh, art making and outdoor activity definitely for those people who participate, but also for those people who see them later. 
uh, online or wherever they find them. You know, sometimes I have responses um, to my website where, you know, there, where people can contact me who send me an email and say, I really love this. I, you know, I did, I, I did a small one with my kids and my neighbor's kids the other day. And, you know, so <laughs> yeah. I get a lot of that. I or bet. people, one, one thing that just happened a couple of weeks ago, a woman from, I think, Illinois or something, Minnesota maybe actually, uh, contacted me and um, sent me images of this dress that she had had sewn and embroidered patterns that were taken from <laughs> from the snow drawings oh, images. It nice. was just amazing. So, you know, it's um I think it just it for some reason I think it's the patterns are simple and they maybe because of that resonate with people. And I I it's it's hard to tell why. I think maybe it's also because it's sort of unique, you know, it's something that not everyone does. There is another artist who, who works in snow and does uh, uh, designs in snow. He uh, he creates mostly uh, geometrical patterns, though, so he works on his own or maybe with a couple, you know, trained um, part, uh, volunteers that, you know, I think they, they work with a compass and exact measurements and stuff. It's completely different, while mine is really happens in the moment, in the, in the creative process, it's not preconceived. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, you know, and I think it's something because it's in the landscape and it's so big and it's so so different from other artwork that you would see in a gallery, you know. Mm-hmm. I think um, it speaks to people also who don't usually, you know, who are not art goers, who are not the, the typical um, gallery public or museum public, you yeah. know. Yeah. Like uh, people who who don't usually, you know, engage in the arts at all it speaks to them as well and i i really like that because that's kind of what i want to do with my art i really don't want to make art just for artists you know yeah so uh i really like that aspect of it that it speaks to uh so many different um sections or levels of whatever layers of population you know so yeah well i want to make a, a pivot here and talk a little bit about we, we've already touched on it, but uh, this idea of socially conscious art, and certainly the snow drawings have kind of an environmental meaning or slant to them, and so you and I share an interest in making these kinds of pieces uh, that are about some issue, be it inequality or injustice or environmental issues or other social issues, and we've already kind of touched on this a little bit, but maybe you could talk a little bit about your decision or how you engage with issue-based pieces. We talked about the idea of not wanting to be didactic and, you know, being too forceful with these ideas. But how do you engage with this kind of work? Well, it wasn't a conscious decision for me to venture into issue-based artwork. Um, I guess I had always looked at the world with a critical mind, uh, maybe even an activist mind. When I was still living in Germany, I was involved in you know, protests a lot, um, especially if they were about environmental purposes or concerns and, you know, also human, human humanitarian. Um, I haven't done so much of that here in the U.S. and that has to do partly be- with my status as an immigrant. You know, I would never use aggression or force uh, or violence during a protest, but there's always that chance to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And for me, this could have serious consequences. So I haven't been that active.
active in that sense. I guess um, I always wanted, you know, I always feel like I need to, there is so much to say and so much to respond to, especially, you know, if it, if it comes to environmental issues. Uh, and that is my main focus, really, because I think that is the most important, more important even than social rights issues or poverty or really more important than anything else. Because if we destroy our habitat, the planet that supports our life, we are, we are doomed. We are simply doomed. So this should come first. Ironically, our governments always put this last and focus on issues like economy and unemployment first. Well, as I see it, if we destroy our planet, we don't need to worry anymore about money and jobs and poverty, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Destroying our planet, our environment is basically a form of mass suicide, you know? So, um, well, yeah. No, it um, makes a lot of sense. Know. It makes a lot yeah. of sense what you're saying. And I think that we just as a society tend to put money ahead of a lot of things. What's important is is our health. You know, that's that's really important. And then, you know, how we can and our health is often related to our environment. So it seems to me that you're on the on the right track as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, let's let's make a uh, subject shift here and talk about some other work that you've done. There's a lovely uh, piece that you did called Tafia's Domestic Canyons is the name of the piece. And this is a sort of a series of these haunting nighttime photos of various streets and buildings in this medieval hilltop town in Italy. And sort of like narrow corridors and archways that are lit by shades of yellow and green light. Really lovely photos. And then there are some sort of companion essays that go along with it. The You call them the night stories. Can you talk a little bit about this project? Yeah. So this happened last year during an artist residency in Italy in that same town. That's, you know, that town, that little town, Tofia, uh, which sits on top of a rock. And uh, it's in the Sabina Mountains, I would say about an hour from Rome. And it dates back to the Middle Ages, around 800, 900, and beyond that even to Roman times. Uh, one of the main Roman roads goes goes by there at the bottom of the of the rock, and this whole medieval town is built out of big boulders basically, and the narrow roads, um, most of them way too narrow for cars, so most of the town is actually car free. They wind through those majestic stone walls, sort of like canyons. It's a, a very poetic place. I started photographing the entire town at first by day, but then found it even more intriguing at nighttime. And I shot hundreds of photos, actually probably thousands, and selected um, uh, those 60 that are, in this, that are in this series that you found on my website. And I'm still thinking of making a book with these photos and the texts. So far, however, it only exists digitally. And the texts... There are two parts of the texts. There is a text that summarizes the history of Tafia. And that was actually quite challenging to research because there's barely anything written about this little town. And the little bits and pieces that are written are, of course, in Italian. 
Um, so I had a local historian tell me all of these facts and, you know, uh, worked with, the, with a translator and uh, compiled this, this little summary of the history of Tafia. And then there are more poetic texts, um, which is a collection that I wrote that talks about my perceptions and points out little stories that I experienced um, during my time there and during the photo shoots too. I used to write a lot. I've done this in other pieces too, and um, it often goes into video pieces in, in short little sections. I have never really combined it in, in that sense with uh, photos before though. So it kind of calls for making a book out of it, at least to me. Yeah. Well, and I always find it interesting to hear the voice of the artist, um, y you know, talking about their experience of making pieces. And, and uh, this one, uh, there's one essay or a short essay, a little vignette. That's what I call them. Called, yeah, that's what you called yeah. them. Yeah. So my favorite vignette from this piece that I read on your website, and, and there's more to this, right? These are just sort of selections that you've put up on the website. There's actually more texts. Yeah. Yeah. The one that I like the most is called The Night Chat, and I wonder if you would, would want to read that. Yeah, sure, I can. Okay. The Night Chat. It takes me three nights to shoot the upper part of town. I keep passing a group of chatting women at least twice each time, as well as, as on my way back into town through the lower gate, coming back from hikes right before sunset. They sit in chairs outside their houses, elderly, chatting with each, with each other. Three women, mostly, sometimes accompanied by one man. I say, Bona sera, each time, and each of the, them responds, religiously, like a canon the same way every time I pass. They smile, but I know that they are likely confused about me passing by so many times, often equipped with camera and tripod. One time, returning from a hike, entering town through the lower gate, I hear their chatting as soon as I walk up the, the steep street toward the theater square. When I pass them, I can't help laughing. It suddenly seems funny, absurd almost that they would be sitting there, always in the same place, same constellation, always responding my greetings in the same way, one of them always nodding her head with a big smile toward me. I expect them to laugh as well, but they don't, which seems, which seems even more absurd. I had hoped the laughter in my voice would break the ice between us, but it doesn't. They just repeat my greetings the same way they always do, almost stoic. It's almost as if the same day is repeating over and over again. Yes, you know? it really is. Yeah, uh, yeah. It fascinating, is. fascinating. Uh, a place where, this is what I wanted to say, it's almost a place where time seems to stand still. It is. It really is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and uh, maybe start the process of, of wrapping here. And uh, I always like to close the show by getting some advice and insight into an artistic life, uh, specifically getting some perspectives on living and sustaining a creative life. So I'll open up and, and let you talk about that topic. Yeah, first of all, it is um, pretty challenging to live in the San Francisco Bay Area as an artist because of the extremely high costs, um, especially rent. 
Um, Oakland, where I live, used to be sort of a refuge for artists, but rents have also gone through the roof within the past five years or so here. Um, and of course, it keeps going up. I have to say there isn't really much support for artists here. You know, I think I said before, there are places like, you know, Minneapolis, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where there is just more artist support. Yeah, I feel like the Bay Area is really making it hard for us artists to live here, you know, by not really supporting us. I feel like it was essentially creative people who made this area the cool place that it is now. And that attracted people with money and big paychecks, yeah. you know, because yeah. it's so cool because they like um, interesting and colorful places. Uh, so they all came here and then we couldn't afford being here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so um, and recently all of those, uh, sorry to say that, but stupid tech industries have moved into downtown San Francisco, such as Google, Facebook. You know, so they move in and um, this results in a, you know, mass gentrification and evictions left and right of, you know, old crown, old grown small businesses and people who have lived there all their lives. Because all of a sudden, a whole section of town becomes sort of, you know, uplifted in a strange way, meaning the rents go up because of these tech companies moving in. Hmm. And I have to say... <laughs> I hate them all. I really do. I'm sorry to be so dark, but <laughs> I wouldn't mind if they went bankrupt tomorrow, all of them at once. They don't do anything good for San Francisco. They don't even create jobs for local people as they actually mostly bring their employees with them. So, you know, they just make life difficult. They just make life difficult for those people who have either always lived in San Francisco and who can't live there anymore and people like me who, you know, are artists and have a fairly low income and really love this area and love to contribute to its society and its community, but, you know, who are really given a hard time. Um, I can only live here being very frugal. I share a small two-bedroom with another woman, and I also don't have a studio. There are a lot of things that a majority of people takes for granted that I don't have, like a car or a smartphone. I still have, like, one of these cheap, you know, phones that have no... They can, can receive texts, that's it. Mm -hmm. And, of course, phone calls. I, I really only have what I need, um, and that has been working pretty well for me. You know, as you can see in my artwork, it's pretty immaterial, and the same way I'm also very not very materialistic in my life. Yeah, and sometimes it would be nice, however, to have some more financial flexibility, especially when it comes to being able to take courses that would be career enhancing or skill workshops, things like that. And, you know, I can't afford doing them. Yeah. Do, I don't have a lot of income from my artwork, very little, like sometimes a grant or, a, or, or an occasional sale, but by no means anything, you know, that I could live from. So at the moment, I live from savings uh, mostly. And I that will need to change pretty soon, though. As I said, I had, have no studio, but I have been finding creative ways to do my work. Some of it I don't need a studio for because it's computer-based. And for my snow drawings, for these prints that I make, I work at a nonprofit called the Color Art Institute in Berkeley. 
it's a sort of studio collaborative. It's a uh, yeah for printmakers uh, primarily, but uh, they also have pro pro professional digital printing facilities, uh, which is what I use there. Um, and I have to say, I'm really grateful for Kala. Thank you, Kala, for being there, really. Um, and then I've also had a couple of short-term studio residencies at local arts uh, artist organizations. Uh, one was last year at the Compound Gallery in stu and Studios, which is in Oakland. And I just finished one now at an artist, um, finished, sorry, and I just finished an artist residency at a yoga studio in the San Francisco Dog Patch area. The woman who runs this yoga studio has an art and architecture background herself. And so she came up with this amazing idea that the yoga studio could be used as a drawing studio during hours uh, when there are no classes. Oh, great. Um, it's called the Scrawl Center for Drawing. And, you know, this opportunity enabled me to work on huge drawings, um, which I'd like to do because, you know, this is a huge space. It's a yoga studio. And then I also do two or three artist residencies per year in other parts of the U.S. or in Europe. And I might go to Australia next spring, which is not quite sure yet, but possibly. And then, of course, I'm away also, you know, to create my snow drawings uh, in the places that have snow. So usually this is a condensed time period uh, between January and March and sometimes you know, in different locations, sometimes I, I, I go from one place to the next or, or, you know, I come back in between. It depends. It's usually a, a, a very busy time for me. And then for my ceramics work, I take classes at a community college here in Oakland. And that enables me to work in the ceramic studio three days a week, uh, which is pretty amazing. It's an amazing opportunity and I'm grateful for that too. Yeah, so, you know, there are times when I wish I had a studio, but it's not really necessary for me. I'm kind of lucky in that sense. People who, you know, work in sculpture or painting, they are not so lucky. They have to have a studio. Yeah, yeah as, as I said, there is a lot of things that I don't have that other people take for granted. This also includes uh, security-related things like retirement plan and such. And I have to say that I'm very grateful for Obamacare, uh, as there were times when I had no health insurance at all. However, I have to say that I'm really happy and I feel like my life is very fulfilling and always full of creativity. In my life, there is really no day that's the same. You know, each day is different. And I just know that I would not be happy in a job like, let's say, an office job. Uh, I have done that temporarily, especially in Germany. And I always counted the days until this was finished. Mm -hmm. You know, I couldn't help myself questioning what that work was really good for uh, and why I would be spending so much time with it, um, you know, why it would be worth for, for anyone really to spend time with that kind of work. And uh, saying that, of course, there are exceptions to that. There are organizations that add to the greater good uh, like, you know, environmental or humanitarian organizations that, you know, also need office work. And that's, of course, great. 
but uh, most office jobs seem to be at corporations and seem to lead to nothing else than enriching the already rich. Um, what I'm thinking of office like, you know, banks and big corporations where CEOs pocket um, incredible salaries while their, while their employees do all the boring work. I don't want to be part of that concept. I just don't want to and I can't. It's just, it doesn't work with me. Uh, so, you know, I feel like I'll always be an artist and uh, work that's too repetitive and too directed doesn't work for me. So if I have to find a job, which, you know, which I will do, have to do pretty soon, it works much better if it's something that's more self-directed where I can bring my creativity uh, into the job. For instance, I have taught German as a second language before and I might try doing that again. Of course, I would prefer teaching art. I could possibly also see myself working at an arts organization, but not probably not in the office part. You know, to be honest, I also think I could do much better making money from my artwork if only I had I was a little more savvy in promoting myself and in marketing skills. That's something to work on, hmm. too. But, you know, it's like... There are a few artists who are really good at that, but I think the majority of artists are not so good at that. <laughs> um, well, all in all, I think it's super important as an artist to be true to oneself and to allow for a certain openness, you know, to accept uh, new things that come in, uh, uh, new ideas and, you know. And also I think... Uh, it's important to analyze what is really important to us. Uh, what do we really need? Um, and uh, what expectations do we have for our lives and also as you know, artists? What is it that we want to bring to society? I do think we have a certain responsibility towards society, especially artists like myself whose work addresses certain world issues and tries to make statements. Yeah. Beautiful and eloquent, Sonia. Thank you so much for all of this. There's quite a lot here to think about and to unpack. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. This was really great. I really appreciated talking to you. This was amazing. Thanks a lot. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at thatjohnlane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.